Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be worshiping with you in this way this morning. And um, I, I love the message of that song. It paints such a beautiful story for us to consider about life in Christ and eternity with Him. And um, honestly, truthfully, there are so many stories that are, are floating around the world these days. We have to kind of pick and choose which stories we're going to listen to. And a lot of times those stories, even without realizing it, they are shaping our life story and what we believe and what we do. Uh, there's lots of stories about COVID right now and coronavirus and lots of things, of course. But maybe there are a few stories that come to mind for you. I think of the story of what I'll call political salvation, which is a very loud story, I think, these days. Uh, leading up to the election, I, just a few weeks ago, I heard a woman in a restaurant was speaking to someone next to her, but was speaking very loudly for everyone to hear about how if America didn't vote in her candidate, then the country would collapse and we would all be under government control. Have you heard that story? It's pretty prevalent these days. Or there's other stories that we may not think about all that much. I, I think about the story of, of what I'll call, you know, cultural safety. Uh, I've been reading a book called The Coddling of the American Mind, and the authors there have talked about, over the last couple of decades anyway, how you don't see as many kids who will be out walking with their friends or riding their bike or going to a neighborhood grocery store to buy, you know, chocolate sandwich cookies or something, uh, because there's this large cultural story that says how unsafe kids are. They could be abducted. They could be taken. And yet, uh, according to the FBI, they write, almost 90% of kids who go missing these days have either miscommunicated their plans or misunderstood directions, or maybe they've intentionally run away from home. And then they said 99.8% of children, 99.8% of missing kids come home. A very tiny, uh, less than 1% are abducted by a stranger. And since the 1990s, the rates of all crimes against kids have gone down, while the chances of kidnapped child surviving the ordeal have gone up. Now, those are the facts. We, we live in an age in which kids are more safe than they have been in decades, and yet we hear the story. I felt that as a dad, the story of an unsafe culture for our kids. Have you heard that story? Or, of course, there's always the story about financial salvation, financial stability. The more money we have, the better off we'll be or the more stable and secure we'll be. I, I heard a little bit that in a news story about a woman named Sue Burgess who won the second chance lottery in the state of Florida, and she won $1,000 in that lottery. And during the pandemic, uh, you know, she decided to mail in her winning ticket in order to receive her earnings, and wouldn't you know it, her ticket got lost in the mail. And she was crushed, you know? I think the lottery officials are trying to work with her now, and they may eventually pay out on that. But you've heard that story. Just more money and, and uh, lots of money makes life better. Those are the stories that are circulating. And today I want to listen to a story, but more than that, I want you to write a story, the story of your own life. We have over the last several weeks been working through a series of Mad Libs together where we've been, you know, creating a story with weird twists and turns like you've heard just a moment ago. But we've also been working through Matthew chapter 21 together. And uh, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to open up there with us this morning as we look at the story of Jesus and all the words that have come together, the exclamation words as he comes into Jerusalem and, and the question words about who he is and the plural nouns and the verbs about what we do or what we believe. But today I want you to write your own story. And I hope that this Matthew Mad Lib will shape your life story. 
Uh, Let's pick it up, Matthew 21, starting in verse 33. Jesus says to the religious leaders of his day, listen to another parable. Only three parables are found in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is one of them. He says, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a winepress in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. Now, this was a common enough story in the ancient Near East, nothing too strange about this kind of story. Often in the Roman Empire, there were wealthy landowners who would go and set up their farm out in the country. Uh, They owned massive amounts of land. And then they would often move away, far away, to a city perhaps, And they would leave the maintenance of the farm to some tenant farmers who were probably free peasants or, in some cases, they were slaves. And so the owner didn't have a lot of interaction with the workers, the farm workers, except when it came time for the harvest. And then he would come and they would, if they were paid workers, not slaves, they would divvy up the crops for them. Sometimes as much as 25% of the harvest would go to the workers. Nothing too novel about this story, honestly. But there is something novel about this landowner, I think. Uh, First of all, did you notice in the story, he does all the work. Seven times he's the subject of a verb in this opening section. He planted and put and dug and built and rented and moved and sent. This guy has put in the sweat equity into the farm. In a lot of ways, he reminds me of that same vineyard owner in Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah tells a story through song about a vineyard owner, and he says this in Isaiah 5, verse 1, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. Listen to the language. He dug it up. He cleared it of stones. He planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. And then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Do you hear the similarities there? This vineyard owner does all the work, and Isaiah says that vineyard owner in his story is God, and the vineyard are his people. Now, something's going on here in the story of Jesus. Hold on to that thought. But in any case, what we find is that a vineyard owner like this, who does all of the work and takes all of the risk to to produce this, must surely love his farm and has absolute rights over it. Wouldn't you agree? This landowner is a little unique. He's also quite lavish in the story. He doesn't use slave labor in the fields. Verse 33, he rented his vineyard to farmers. He shares his wealth. He is benevolent. He is generous. Other aristocrats or landowners may have looked at him as naive. Why don't you just use slave labor? You would make more profit. But this landowner cares about his tenant workers, and he pays them. He's generous with them. He's lavish. Well, let's continue. Verse 35, the story goes on. He sends his servants to collect the harvest. And it says, the tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. They're murderers. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time. This landowner is long-suffering. When these tenants murdered the first set, he sends more servants to them out of respect, even though they're wicked. The tenants, though, treated them the same way. They are persistent in their wickedness. They are unmoving in their evil. So last of all, he sent his son to them. This sounds like a bad idea. 
He said, they will respect my son. No, no, they won't. Listen, we've heard this story before. We know where this is going. I'm shouting at the landowner at this point, don't do it. But the story continues. When the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Notice in their language, they assume the landowner is dead. He's absent. He's out of thought. And so in the ancient world, you know, possession was nine-tenths of the law. They feel if they can take care of the heir, if they take, uh, take him out of the picture, they will have squatter's rights over this land, and maybe they can take possession of it. They say, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, this is excessive. This is a rated R story. These tenants do not accept the gracious ownership of God. Instead, they take They seize and they beat and they kill and they are wicked. Now, I get it. Their work was hard. It was expensive. According to a commentator named Derrett, he notes that the ancient vineyard was a major, was a long-term investment in order to plant a Uh, A a crop like this for fruit, uh, no returns could be expected for at least four years, according to the Jewish law in Leviticus 19. For the first three years, uh, you were not to eat the crop or or harvest the crop. In the fourth year, you were to, to give the crop over to God as an offering. It's only in the fifth year that the harvest could be enjoyed. And so it's possible for years that these farmers have tended to this farm, this vineyard, and they've they've tended to it year after year, and it's hard work. They're putting in their sweat equity too, but their work clouds over the true ownership, and they take. In a lot of ways, it reminds me of that old story of Joseph in Genesis 37. You remember that story where Joseph is the youngest brother, and he's got all these older brothers around him, and he keeps having these pesky dreams about how all his brothers, his whole family, are going to bow down to him, and he just keeps babbling this dream out to anybody who will listen, you know, and, and that kind of annoys older brothers when they hear their younger brothers say that, you know, you're going to bow to me one day, you're going to be my, my servant, and so they just get agitated and more agitated, and finally they just get so angry, they're murderous in their intent, and one day, Joseph goes out to the field. Jacob, his father, sends him out there. Joseph feels like daddy's favorite, and the brothers see him coming, and they say, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns. Just eliminate this responsible you know, person of authority. Just get rid of the problem person. That's insane, of course, but it's not unique. For generations, the people of Israel have been doing the same thing. People sent by God came to Israel's leaders, and they were seized, and they were taken, and prophets were killed. Second Chronicles 36 describes it this way. It says, that The Lord, Yahweh, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers. They despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of Yahweh was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. In the days of Jesus, those leaders were called the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They they felt like they were the owners of the vineyard. And so when harvest time came, they felt they owned it and they resisted. Even in the face of a sacrificial son named Jesus. Hold on to that thought as Matthew's Mad Lib continues in verse 40. Therefore, Jesus says, when the owner of the vineyard comes, notice the language, it is when, not if. This 
vineyard owner will come to set all things right. When he comes, what will he do to those tenants, Jesus asked. And the very people he's talking to, the very people who are acting like tenants, they answer, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Now we have some jarring judgment. The story ends on a sour note, the transfer of responsibility. If these evil tenants won't respect the landowner, he will find someone who does. Now, I'm guessing you're probably not giggling over this Mad Lib story here in Matthew's Gospel. This is not exactly a cheery story. But I do wonder if it's a story that's shaping your life story. Because there's so many stories these days that whisper so many things, and we, we hear them all the time, maybe without realizing it. There's a story circulating these days that I'll call the, the story of the online expert or the, the TV expert, you know, where we're more apt to listen to someone who speaks confidently than someone who may speak expertly or who sp- may speak intimately to us so that we feel like, you know, when a Kardashian tweets an opinion or a celebrity talks on a late night TV show or a pastor of a large church in California says something, they must know, they must know more than my doctor, my family, my church. Have you heard that story recently? It's going around. Or there's the story of what I'll call, you know, good people versus evil people. Again, in that book, The Coddling of the American Mind, they talk about how so often we see people who we agree with and we we think of them as good people and people who disagree with us, those are the evil people, and we take what they say in the worst possible way. It causes such division. Uh, They tell a story about a well-meaning dean of Claremont McKenna College who, uh, the dean read a student article from a Hispanic student, and she wrote wrote about how she felt excluded on campus, how she felt marginalized, and a lot of hurtful language, and she felt like she didn't fit in the college. And this moved the dean, and so she wrote an email to the student, and she thanked her for writing this article and for raising some of these issues. She told her, these issues are, quote, important to me and the staff, and we are working on how we can better serve students, especially those who don't fit our CMC mold. I would love to talk with you more, unquote. But instead of interpreting her words and her genuine concern, this student heard the word mold and got outraged. I don't fit the mold. And, and so she puts it out on social media about what was said and, and she puts it in the worst possible context and protests began to develop and threats were made and demands were made. And finally, as it escalated, the dean resigned from her role. There are so many stories these days that, that shape us and shape our life story. I wonder if Matthew's Mad Lib can create the right terms for your story. See, here's the question I want to explore with you. How will the story of your life read? You have to fill in the blanks of your own life. Let me just offer a few questions for you to guide you as you think about your own story. And the first question is, who will be the main character of your story? Matthew's Mad Lib reminds us that God is the landowner, and God loves us. Any ordinary landlord would have immediately stomped out the rebellion of those servants after the first attempt, and yet he sends more servants and more servants and finally sends his son. This is no ordinary landlord. This is no ordinary main character. He has worked tirelessly, you see, to create a beautiful place for us to grow and to learn and to be blessed. We are here because of his gifts, because of his generosity. He cares deeply for you. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Our God wants you to have abundant life. Plus he's lavish. He's generous. John would put it this way in 1 John 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. When we join his story, he pours out his love again and again and again. But even when we stray, God remains long-suffering with us. Now, Peter would write this in the New Testament. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He is patiently waiting for your respectful response. He sins and sins and sins his love for you. He doesn't stomp out your sin or stomp you out on the first time you sin with thunderous judgment. He's patient. But you have to decide who will be the main character in your story. Will it be God, this God? Or is it you? The loudest stories in our culture today are compelling us to write all over our life story one simple word, mine. But this kingdom story whispers a better word to us, his. Who will be the main character in your story? Another question you have to consider is this. How will you respond when God's story conflicts with yours? Again, in Matthew's Mad Lib story here, it reminds us that we tenants, we continually fail to realize our role here. We rebel against our creator. He entrusted his work to us, an amazing privilege, and yet we've somehow tried to wrestle control away from him. We take over control. Apparently, we want to be like the gods. But then the conflict crashes into our story, and God sends his son. They will respect my son, he says. Jesus is our last hope. He is humanity's last hope. God has sent his own son to us, and here we are, and we can't see the writing on the wall, so we throw God's son out of the vineyard, out of his own creation, and we murder him, as Hebrews would tell us in Hebrews 13. Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. See, so many stories that you'll hear these days will tell you to spit in defiance at a God who is in control, a God who wants to be king of your life. No, 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 you should live your own life, be your own man, be your own woman. But you have to decide, what are you going to do with this Jesus? Will you welcome the Son or will you wrestle him outside of your life? I guess what I'm really asking is this final question to shape your story. What will be your ending? Jesus offers this little epilogue at the end of his Matthew Mad Lib in verse 42. He says this, uh, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, from these religious leaders, and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls 
will be crushed. Jesus quotes from Psalm 118 here. And in Psalm 118, the the stone are, are the people of Israel that have been rejected by enemies, powerful enemies all around them, and yet God has restored them. He has rescued them from that Uh, that oppression. Yet Jesus writes himself in as that Israel stone here. He is the one being rejected by the religious leaders. And today, you get to write that stone into your story. What are you going to do with this stone, this Jesus? Will you receive Jesus as cornerstone or will you reject him as a cast-off rebel? What will be your final word in your story? There's so many stories circulating today. You know You hear the news, smart stories and dumb stories and silly stories and fake news stories. Here's some headlines I've been reading here just recently. How about this one? McDonald's French fries responsible for keeping hair from falling out. (laughs) I hope so, but I doubt it. Or maybe you heard this story. Oregon police remind residents not to call 911 if they run out of toilet paper. I can't believe somebody has to write that story, but apparently it's important. Lots of stories circulating around, and they shape us in ways we may not understand, but there's only one story that must shape your life. Our generous creator loves you and cares about you deeply. But we tenants, we have maliciously treated him and his servants, and especially his son, casting him away on a cross to his own death. But God, who is rich in mercy, will allow us now in his son to choose a different conclusion. Embrace the son, the once rejected stone, or be crushed by his coming kingdom. I hope you let your pastor give you a little writing advice today for your life story. Write Jesus into your story as your king and find a glorious ending. Otherwise, your life will just tell some silly story and will end in tragedy. And no one wants that. No one wants that mad lib. So whatever decisions you need to make today, I hope you'll write a great story. Let's pray. Father, we repent before you today, acknowledging how many times we've tried to wrestle control away from you, how many times we've said mine, when all the while it's yours. You've been gracious, you've been lavish, you've been long-suffering. Father, we're sorry. And we're also thankful. We're grateful that you give us another opportunity in this Christ, in this Son, who defeated death on our behalf, and now we can live out and be fruitful in his kingdom. Help us to be that people this week. Help us to be fruitful for your kingdom and so live into a beautiful narrative you're telling from the creation of the world till its consummation. We thank you for the part we can play in this story, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.